Me and Terry are pretty close. Whoa, there it is. All right, that's better. <clears throat> Am I too loud now? Okay. I'm going to whisper until Terry gets back to the booth. I do. Wow, it's a miracle. Check, 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 check. Better? Hmm? Okay. Whatever, we'll roll with it. Um, yeah, it's good to see you guys. It's good to be back together. Uh, it's good to see half of your faces. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, this is not, this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but have you noticed that, like, they're just, you'll be out in public, and you'll see somebody, and you'll be like, that's like, that's a, that's a pretty person, that person is attractive, and then, like, they'll take off their mask, and you'll be like, whoa, wow, they were doing, they were doing so much better with the mask, uh, and I'm hoping that I'm not that kind of person, but maybe, uh, anyway, so, sermon time, um, so yeah, I hope that this sermon, uh, will, be somewhat better than what it was yesterday. Uh, I tried to explain some things to Maritza about my sermon and kind of just give her the gist of it, and she literally, I'm not joking, fell asleep while I was talking to her, just the two of us having a conversation. Uh, so uh, get comfortable. Maybe this will be a good nap time, uh, or maybe it'll be a good word, either one, but it's going to be a good time either way. Um, and just one more thing before we get started. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to my wife, she graduated from Bible college on Friday, so, yeah, 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 pretty and smart. Um, I'm going to pray for this sermon. Heavenly Father, I pray um, that you just fill me with your spirit now. I pray for your help. God, I pray that you would grant me words um, of boldness and clarity. And Jesus, I pray that you would help us to receive uh, these words uh, the way that you would intend. I pray, Father, that you would make us all leave here uh, more in love with you. I pray that you would be honored and glorified. And uh, we love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, you, can, you can put away that slide. That's not for a long time from now. Uh, let me just go to a blank screen, I guess. Uh, sermon, just in case you forget where we're at. <laughs> if you fall asleep and you wake up and you forget where we were, you'll, you'll be able to look up there and see that. So, um, yeah, today uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about God's uh, character and God's attributes, uh, one in particular. Uh, God has uh, many different attributes, different things that make him God. Uh, I'm not talking so much about uh, his character traits and his kindness and his patience and things like that, but more of the things that make him God and make us not God. Um, so an example of that would be, you know, all of the omnis. If you know your theological language, uh, God is omnipresent. He's all, uh, he's everywhere all the time. God is uh, omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do anything he wants. There's nothing that he can't do. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing's going to surprise him. He uh, there's nothing that he's unaware of. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's uncreated, he's, which basically makes him completely unique in himself as the only one who is the uncreated being, making him God. So there's all these different things, that, all these omnis, all these omnipresence, all these things like that, uh, that make God, God. And there's one other thing that doesn't get talked about as much, probably because it doesn't have an omni at the front of it, so it kind of just gets forgotten. Uh, but 
uh, that is God's immutability. Immutability is uh, a big term. It doesn't mean uh, that you can't shut him up. Uh, that is kind of misleading, not like unable to mute or something like that. Uh, immutability is, refers to God's unchangingness. You've probably seen a lot of these scriptures throughout the Bible. I'm just going to go to uh, one of them right now. It's in Malachi chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> the verse says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, so that you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And uh, you've probably seen other passages about this. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, there's another beautiful passage in James where James says that uh, all the good gifts come from uh, the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, so yeah, God is immutable. He does not change. And this, may, this is like part of really him being, this is an essential part of him being God. Uh, because it kind of comes with being perfect. If, you, if we say that God is perfect, we say that he can't be any better or any worse, that means that he can't change. Because if you're changing, uh, say that you try to improve on something that's already perfect, you're just going to make it unperfect if you change it in any way, right? And if anything like you've, if anything was improved, that means that it's, it wasn't perfect before. So, like, nobody takes a soup and is like, wow, that's perfect. It needs some salt. Like, don't change it because it's already perfect, right? So, that's what we mean about God, and that's why it's necessary for God to be immutable. It's, it's necessary for God to be God. He has to be unchanging. Now, it's also a very good thing for us. If you go back and look at this passage that we're looking at specifically, uh, God has some beef uh, with the Israelites. Not anything unusual there for uh, a prophetic book like Malachi. Let's look at the immediate context in verse 5. I'm just going to read it to you. I don't have a slide or anything. Uh, so God is saying, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who fraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, and do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So, God is saying, you're in trouble. <laughs> There's, you guys are guilty of sin. And uh, basically, if you know any of the other prophetic books, you know God is saying, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to discipline you, punish you. Uh, I shouldn't say wipe you out. God disciplines and punish, punishes, and this is kind of the point, but he never wipes them out. He never completely does away with Israel. And this is why it's a good thing that God is unchangeable. He says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You see the connection? It's not super obvious at first. So what does God's unchangingness, the fact that he doesn't change, have to do with the fact that Israel will not be destroyed? Well, it's the fact that he and his attribute, specifically in this case, of faithfulness, does not change. You see, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. He said, look, I took you out of Egypt. I rescued you out of there for no other reason that I loved you and I chose you as my people. You didn't do anything. I rescued you. I took you out of Egypt. And now we are going to make a covenant. You are going to do this, 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 and this, about 600 of those. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the covenant. And I will prosper you. I will save you. I will rescue you. I will do all these things for you 
and you are going to do these things. But the people are not like God. They do change. They're flaky. They're flimsy. They're wishy-washy. And so before Moses even gets all the commandments written down, they've already made a calf out of gold to worship. And Aaron says, look, this is the thing that brought you guys out of Egypt. Let's worship it. And so, and you see all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, they're breaking the covenant because they are not faithful. They said they would be, but they, but they were not because they changed. But God is saying, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you're not destroyed. Because even if you're not keeping your part of the deal, I'm keeping my part of the deal. You said you were going to be faithful to me, and you were not. I said I was going to be faithful to you, and I'm still going to be faithful to you. So you are not destroyed, because I, the Lord, do not change. That's good news for us. So not only does God not change in his, well, this, is, this should be mentioned too. Uh, all of God's attributes, he doesn't change. Because sometimes, I think we need to mention this because sometimes we think that Old Testament God was mean God and New Testament God was, is nice God. Uh, he didn't change. God has been God and he's been the same way from the beginning to the end. God looks a little mean in the Old Testament, I'll grant you that. You go back and you look and he's destroying people and people sin and, they, uh, and they're destroyed for it and things like that. And then you get in the New Testament and it's like God is very nice. And Jesus is going around healing people and making lots of bread and turning water into wine and things like that. I'd love to hang out with that Jesus. Whereas the Old Testament God kind of scares us. But have you ever noticed that the Revelation God looks a lot like the Old Testament God? There wasn't like a, a change. There wasn't like a time in the New Testament where Jesus was kind of nice for a little while and then God went back to being old, mean God. No, in the New Testament we have Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice and covering us with his blood so that the wrath of God passes on from us. The wrath of God is still there. But now being covered under the blood of Jesus, we get to experience a God who does not have wrath towards us. <laughs> we get to Revelation and we see the day where this season of grace has ended. And when that window of opportunity for people to repent and turn to the Lord is over, we see God's full wrath come upon the earth in its fullness. God does not change. And don't think that a wrathful God is something that we have to hide. It's a good thing. I think about Hitler Think about what he did. Think about the millions of lives that he cost the world. What was it, where was his justice? Do you remember how he died? He shot himself. A microsecond of pain. And then he ceases to exist. Think about what happened to Martin Luther King. The same thing. That beautiful, amazing man of God and all the good that he did for the world suffered the same fate as Hitler. I don't want to be a part of a world like that, but thankfully that's not how the world is. Hitler is to this day still suffering for the pain that he caused all of those people. He is still experiencing the punishment for his sins because God is a wrathful God and he will not, he is just and he will not let sin go unpunished. And that's a good thing. So God is unchanging. He's unchanging in his mercy. He's unchanging in his patience and in his justice and in his beauty. He will never be any more beautiful. He will never be any less beautiful. He will never be any more or less patient because he is perfectly patient and merciful and beautiful and just. Now, another thing that goes along with the fact that God does not change in his attributes, in his character, he also doesn't change his mind. I want to go and take you to uh, 
the, the really, the, there's a few places in, in the Bible that says this, but Samuel, 1 Samuel 15 is where it is the main place that most of us know. So, uh, Sa- Saul, sorry, I'm going to get Saul and Samuel mixed up right here, so forgive me whenever I do that, but Saul is the king of Israel at this point, and really he's been messing up a whole lot, and God's getting really sick and tired of it, and uh, Samuel, uh, God through Samuel, gives Saul some instructions of what he wants him to do. Uh, he says, hey, go up to the Amalekites, and I want you to destroy them completely. And what that means is you destroy all of their stuff, you destroy all of their people, and you destroy all of their animals, everything. There should be nothing left by the time that you're done. And so Saul goes, okay, got it. And he goes, and he uh, takes out the Amalekites, and they, they, uh, they kill everybody, mostly, except for one man. And they kill all the things, mostly, except for some animals. And so Samuel comes up uh, after it's all said and done. And uh, I think we're here in verse 13. And Samuel walks up to Saul, and this is what Saul says. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord blessed you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, I don't have kids yet. But when I do, if I ever come home from work and my child approaches me at the door and says, Greetings, Father. I have done all of your instructions, and I have not broken any rules. I'm going to be a little suspicious. <laughs> Usually, that's the guilty conscience speaking. And so, Saul walks up to Samuel, and he says, he says, Lord, he says I've completed the Lord's instructions. Um, and all of a sudden, you hear, bah. Boo. <laughs> my sheep impression is a lot better than my cow impression. Uh, but Samuel famously is like, okay, well, what's the bleeding of that sheep that I hear uh, in my ears? What's the lowing of the cow that I'm hearing in my ears? And the rest is history. Samuel says to Saul, you are no longer going to be the king. God has chosen, he has rejected you as king. And there's this interesting exchange where Samuel starts to walk away, and Saul reaches out for him, and it says he grabs the hem of Samuel's robe, and it tears and so Samuel turns around, and it's a prophetic action, and he says, <clears throat> The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And here's the big verse. It says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. The Lord does not change his mind. And what he's saying here is God is not, I think it's interesting that he compares him to a human. Because he says, human beings, like, like we talked about earlier, we're wishy-washy and we're flaky. We have plans with people until somebody else offers us some better plans. And we're like, hey, I'm sorry, I can't make it anymore. People are flaky and wishy-washy and we do what feels best to us at the time rather than keeping our commitments. But God does not change his mind. God stays the same in the things that he's planned to do. Now, here's the interesting thing, is um, I went and looked at this passage when studying for, for this sermon, and I wanted to look at the words behind change his mind. What does it mean? Where is it at? What are the other places it's used? And so I looked at the, at the Hebrew word for uh, change his mind. Uh, you can go ahead and, and throw that, that slide up there uh, now, Terry. Oh, wait. I have a clicker. There we go. Um, the Hebrew word for change his mind is naham. Now, 
Naham means basically to, like we, what we said, means to change your mind or to relent. Or it's basically just to correct. To, you're going this way, and now you're going this way. You're changing your course of action. And as I started going through and looking at all the other places where this word showed up in the Old Testament, I got very disturbed because in 1 Samuel 15, 29, he says, Samuel says twice, God does not change his mind. God does not change his mind. God does not naham. And then I go around, and I look around, and there are all these verses where God is changing his mind, where God is, and it, where it explicitly uses the word that it says he does not do, God is naham-ing, okay? Uh, here's just a few of them. Jonah 3.10, when God saw that they did how they, uh, <clears throat> saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, naham, and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Amos 7.3, God's going up to, to, he's prophesying to Amos, or he's telling Amos these things he's going to do, and Amos says, please don't do it, and it says, then the Lord changed his mind, Naham, about this, it shall not be, said the Lord. And very famously, Moses, they do the golden calf, God's like, all right, we're going to wipe them all out, we're going to start over with you. And Moses says, God, please don't do that. And then, so the Lord changed his mind, Naham, about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I don't know about if this bothers any of y'all, but I feel like this is something that some of my atheist friends would come up to me with and be like, look, Bible's not true. It says God does not naham, but look, he's nahaming all over the place. He's changing his mind, said he wouldn't change his mind. And so I was just, I honestly had to pray through this a lot and ask the Lord, what is going on here? Um, and thankfully, I feel like uh, the Lord answered my question, God, how can you not naham, but you naham all the time? If you get anything out of this sermon, I hope you can go home and just remember the word naham. I think I found something of an answer in Psalm 106, 45. The psalmist is going through the history of Israel, and he's basically going through all the things. It's really focusing on all of the bad that Israel has done, how they have not kept the covenant, they have not been faithful. And it says... Therefore the Lord was angry with his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and wasted away in their sin. Now, here, is, here it is. Verse 44 says, Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, and here it is. And out of his great love, he relented. He changed his mind. He naham. And here's the best explanation that I can come up with, is God is someone who doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this and then change it later. But, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I never do this, but... It's really a nice thing to hear whenever you're pulled over by the police. Like, well, I never do this, but you're about to get off, off the hook with a ticket. But this is, I feel like that's how it is with God. Is he's like, I do not change my mind. I'm not a man that I would lie or that I would, I would go back and forth and not keep my commitments. But out of his great love for his people, he has a plan of action. He has decided what he's going to do. But when his people cry out to him, it is enough to make him change his mind and change what he was going to do. 
the people of God have this crazy, scandalous privilege that they can change the minds of the creator and sustainer of all things. A lot of people don't like this, okay? There's, there are many theologians who would be uh, very uncomfortable with the things that I'm saying right now, and they would say, well, it's just the perception that God changed his mind. He didn't actually, like he was already planning that he was going to do that, and he made them uh, say that because he was already planning on, I don't believe that. I believe that it is what it says it is, that God changed his mind. And I think the application for us is that God will change things when his people cry out to him. The point of this isn't like, okay, God's got all these bad things planned and so we gotta go change his mind so a bunch of bad stuff doesn't happen. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the point. What I'm talking about is there is a way that things are going naturally in the world. There is a way that things are going that we deserve. There are a way that things are going because of the way that the world is and the, what, what we deserve. And it's just gonna be that way unless God's people cry out to him and ask for something different. Because the cries of his people actually have an effect on what's going to happen. Things are actually going to change. I want to show you uh, another one of these passages. I'm going to try to fly through this. Uh, but King Hezekiah, okay, he is the king of Israel when Assyria is attacking uh, sorry, the king of Judah, when Israel is attacked, when Assyria is attacking Judah, there's a lot of places here, it's very difficult. Um, and Assyria has come through, and they have torn down every city in their path. Jerusalem is the last one standing, and they've also done this to a whole bunch of other countries, and they're looking unstoppable, and they're knocking on the door of Judah, of Jerusalem, and they are going to take it. It is inevitable. And so, the, the, the king of Assyria comes up, his messenger, and he talks a bunch of smack to, uh, to, Israel, to, the, uh, to the people of God. I'm just going to stop trying. <laughs> to God's people. And uh, they're talking smack. And the king of Assyria writes a letter, and he sends it into the city uh, for Hezekiah. And this is what he says. He says, say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telazar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Lyre, Sepharvim, Hana, and Iva? So, and he's right. He's done all these things that he said. Nobody's been able to stop him. And so he gives this letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah reads it. And I want you to see what Hezekiah does with the letter. He doesn't go and burn it and say, whatever, it's not actually, this is not going to happen. You know, we're fine. He doesn't go and find his advisors and say, all right, guys, we've got to come up with a plan to address this right here. This is what he does. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has, has sent to ridicule the living God. 
Now listen to this. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all the people in their lands. Hezekiah is a realist. He's not denying what's going on. He's not saying, oh, this isn't going to happen in Jesus' name. He sees what's really going on, and he is bringing it to the Lord. He says, they have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. And listen to God's response. There's a whole lot here, and there's a lot of, God does a lot of smack talking. I'm just going to skip that. I recommend you go back and read it, though, because it's pretty cool. In verse 33, it says, Therefore, this is what Yahweh says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And God makes true on his word, and he sends out an angel to wipe out the 185,000 of the army of Sennacherib and sends him home, and Sennacherib is killed in his temple at home. I want you to see just how explicit this is. What made this happen? What, God, what made God intervene? What made God come in? Was it because... Uh, the guy, the, was it because Sennacherib was talking too much trash and God was like, no, I'm not going not gonna to hang with that? Is it because that Israel just deserved it? They just deserved to be rescued out of their own righteousness? Obviously not. This is what he says at the very beginning of God's response. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is what I will do. You catch that? It was because Hezekiah decided to take the situation, to take the threats, and to get down before the Lord in the temple and say, God, this is what we're up against. God, this is what's going to happen. He said he's going to to destroy us, and he will if you do not intervene, if you do not do something. This is what will happen. We need you to come and change the outcome. We need you to come and change the way that this is going or else we are doomed. And I would propose that what we're supposed to learn from this is that we too are, all of us, in our lives, living in a world where stuff is going to hell in a handbasket, and we don't have to just sit and watch it happen. We can go before the Lord and spread out and say, God, this is what's happening. This is where everything is going. This is where this person is going in my life. This is what I'm facing Unless you do something about it. Unless you help us. And it says here after, after, after the prayer and God says what he's going to do, it says, because you prayed. I wonder if God is ever sitting back and thinking, because you didn't pray. Things ended up this way. I wonder if our nation is where it is right now because we didn't pray. I don't know, maybe. That's not really the point. Uh, There's kind of this idea. uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term que sera, sera. Does anybody know what it means? What will be, what will be. Whatever will be is what will be. 
I found out that that's not, it sounds like Latin, like ancient, very intelligent. Somebody, it's actually bad Spanish uh, that somebody who, did, who didn't know Spanish made up back like 60 years ago or something like that. Uh, but anyway, it, it's, the term is as dumb as, as, what, as what I'm trying to say. Uh, the, the whole idea of it is, basically the idea is whatever will be, will be. And I, I'm afraid that that idea has, we've spiritualized it and stuck it into our theology, most of us. And we say, you know what, like God's going to do whatever he's going to do. God has it all planned out and like we can't, like why bother praying? Like praying's good for us maybe, like it makes us a little more spiritual and makes us a little more Christian and stuff and gives us an extra little crown in heaven or something like that. But we're not, it's not really doing anything. I would propose that prayer, really what the essence of prayer is, is yes, it's communing primarily, it's, it's communing with our Father and, and coming into a relationship with Him. But other than that, the main purpose of prayer is to change things. Saying, God, it's this way and we believe it's your will to be this way. Make it happen. Change this. Unfortunately, I don't... I love this illustration. I don't know, has anybody ever here played video games uh, and had your little brother or little sister walk into the room and they say, I want to play? Especially like around the age of three or something like that. You're over there and you're playing and you're having a good time. You're like rocking your high score and stuff. Uh, and your little brother comes in like, I want to play. And what do you do? This works when they're about three years old. You say, you don't want to be like, no, you can't play because he's going to go get mom and he's going to cry and then mom's going to make you let him play and he's going to mess up your KD. Your, uh, for you older people, that means high score. Uh, but so, you, so what are you going to do? Well, you reach in and you say, yeah, sure, of course you can play. And you reach over and you grab another controller and you, you pop the batteries out of it and you hand them the controller and you go, there you go, all right, you go play. And... They're just sitting there, and they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're turning the sticks, and they're pressing the buttons, and they're pulling the triggers and stuff, and they're having a great time. They're, they think that they're actually playing video games, but they're not actually playing video games. And it's wonderful, and it's diabolical, and it's an evil genius scheme, because everybody's happy, and oh, they get bored after five minutes, and they go do something else. But they're sitting there, and they're hitting the inputs, and they're turning the knobs, and they're doing all the stuff, and they think that what they're doing in their hands is having an effect on what's happening in the game, but they're not. We know they're not. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that many of us have thought the same thing is happening, maybe even subconsciously with our prayers. That we're, yeah, we're, we're getting down on our knees and we're praying and we're kind of going through the motions and we're saying the things that we need to say and all that stuff. And we're praying that maybe, yeah, God, that you would lead that person to you or maybe, yeah, God, you would heal this person or whatever. But we don't actually expect anything to happen. We don't think that anything's actually going to happen because of our prayers. And I would say that is so twisted that somehow, some way or another, somebody taught us that that's how prayer works. Or somehow, some way or another, our, we've been disappointed by an unanswered prayer and we just said, well, that must just be how it works. But there is a, such an embarrassing amount of evidence against that idea just in the New Testament alone. Look at how many times Jesus just says the simple words, 
Whatever you pray for, I will give it to you. Ask and you will receive. Matthew 7, 7. Matthew 21, 22. John 14, 14. John 15, 7. 1 John 3, 21 through 22. John 15, 16. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. And we have explained it away. All of them. Could you imagine any other thing in the Bible that we could explain away that shows up this many times? We say, ask the Father in my name, ask whatever the Father in my name, and he may give it to you. Shows up all over the place, but we just add a but at the end. But, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. Jesus never added a but. Jesus just said, it's going to happen. Ask and you'll receive. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to go throw itself into the sea and it will do it. I'm not looking to throw any mountains into the sea, but like maybe something even half as impressive as that. Because Jesus said it would only, my faith would only have to be this big to make that happen. I'm not going to read these. I'm just going to just mention them. This is why this happens. Jesus goes and he tells the story of, uh, in, in Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable of what we call the persistent widow. And this widow is going to the judge and she asks for justice over and over and over again. And God says that this judge is someone who does not fear God and does not care about people. And she goes and she says, give me justice. And the judge says, no. And then she comes back and she says, give me justice. And the judge says, no. And she comes to him repeatedly over and over and over again. And the judge will not give her justice until finally he says, I am going to give this woman what she wants. Otherwise, she's going to literally kill me with her wearing me down, is what it says. And then we go and we see Jesus say another thing in Matthew 7. And he says, which of you, though you're evil, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? And he says, even if you, even you, though you are evil, can give good gifts to your children, imagine what your heavenly father will give good gifts to those who ask him. And the play that Jesus is using here is he's saying, look, even this unjust judge who doesn't care about God, he doesn't care about people, if you just come to him enough, you can wear him down, even though he is evil. Now imagine, this, that's a stranger with an unjust judge. Now imagine the son of a father. Imagine how much faster he would grant the request. And Jesus is saying, that's our relationship with the father. And at the very beginning of that parable, what he says, he gives the purpose of the parable, and he says, and then he told them this parable, so that they might pray and not give up. I'm afraid that a lot of times we have given up. You say, well, I prayed and it didn't happen. We'll keep praying. That's the purpose of the parable, isn't it? Keep praying. I want to share uh, a story with us just to kind of wrap this up. I'm sorry, I hope that this is, I want this, I wanted this to be an encouraging message, but it feels heavy. And, and I think it's okay as long as it's communicated either way. But we just haven't lived like this. We, ha we haven't lived with an expectation that when we pray, that when we cry out to God, that something's going to happen. And I would propose that change is essential to the kingdom. Everywhere that Jesus went, that he said he was bringing the kingdom, change happened. 
when there, where there were demons, they were cast out. Where there was sickness, they, it left. Where there was sin in people's lives, it left in the presence of Jesus and the kingdom. And we can't have a kingdom that doesn't have any change. And we, we, I hope that most of us have figured this out at this point. We can't change much on our own. I know people here in ministry who have tried to change people out of your own volition. It doesn't work. And the point has always been that when we see the things that we're supposed to do, we're supposed to bring change in the world. We're supposed to partner with God in bringing the kingdom to earth. It involves us changing things, but we should know that we can't do it. And so the only thing that we can go to is our knees and say, Jesus, you have to change this. Jesus, my daughter is running from you. You have to change this. God, this person, they're sick. We can't do anything about it. The doctors haven't done anything about it. We need you to change this. It's always in our pursuit of the kingdom supposed to lead us to our knees and ask God to do it. And we're supposed to have an expectation that he actually wants to, that he actually will. And I have to give this caveat. I'm not talking about asking God for a new Lexus. I'm not talking about asking God to give you a boyfriend. Not bad things to ask for, but James says you, ha- you, you do not have because you do not ask. But then you do not have because you ask with selfish motives. We're talking about not seeking our own pleasures, but we're talking about just seeking the kingdom. We're talking about being a Christian and asking God to do the things that we can't do for his glory. Now I just want to read one last story because this story is awesome. Uh, it comes from Jim Cimbala's book, uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He's a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle up in New York. I think I've talked to him, talked about him a little bit. But uh, and I'll, I'll summarize most of this. Um, <clears throat> Jim Cimbala was, was this pastor, and they were doing ministry, and they were having a very successful ministry, and God was doing amazing things in their church. And uh, he describes what was the darkest two and a half years of his life. And what was going on was his daughter was starting to drift away from the faith. And, you know, pretty typical prodigal child story. Started running away from home, started getting into drugs, you know, moved in with this boyfriend who was basically the spawn of Satan and things like that. I think most boyfriends are probably just that, like all boyfriends are that image for a teenage girl's father. But anyway, um, she was real, she was completely falling away from the Lord. And he describes this as being the darkest time of his life. And it really started to just affect every part of him. He said that he would drive to church early, as a pastor does, and, and he would sit and he would go in and, and instead of going in and doing his work and getting ready for Sunday morning, he would sit in the parking lot and just cry for 30 minutes before going into, going into work, going into church. And uh, he said that... Uh, even his wife, they were having this amazing, awesome ministry, changing lives in Brooklyn. And the devil had so convinced them because of what he had done to uh, their first daughter, their firstborn daughter, Chrissy, um, that it was going to happen to their younger kids as well. And basically he was saying, you need to get out of this city, you need to get out of this ministry, or else the same thing's going to happen to your younger kids. And so she almost jumped ship and just left him over this. Thankfully, you know, she didn't end up doing that. But this is how much it was affecting their lives. And so 
finally, after years of dealing with this, and he said they tried everything. They tried taking away privileges. They tried hunting her down. They tried calling her. They tried doing everything that they could, bribing her to get her to come back, not even to God, but just to the family, and nothing worked. And he said, finally, there came a day where he said, I'm not going to tell anybody else about this. I'm not going to talk to anyone about it. I'm done uh, trying to fix it on my own. I'm done trying to bring her back on my own. He said, I will not talk to anybody about this except the Lord from now on until she comes home. And that was what he did. He made that his new plan. And finally, there was one day where he was up front here leading a prayer meeting, and he said he was barely getting through it, so in anguish and so messed up over his daughter uh, that they were in the middle of the prayer meeting, and some uh, some usher came and brought him a note that was written by a lady in the congregation, and it said, Pastor, I feel impressed by the Lord that we're supposed to pray for your daughter. And this was a pretty crazy thing because he didn't really ever tell anybody or talk to anybody about what was going on with his daughter. And so he took that as a pretty clear sign from the Lord, and so they stopped, and they all gathered together in a room a lot like this, and they joined hands, and they just prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they cried out to God that his daughter would return, his daughter would be saved. So they were there for hours praying for his daughter. He said, finally, he got home, and he walked in the door, and he said to his wife, it's over. She's like, what are you talking about? He said, Chrissy, it's over with Chrissy. This nightmare is over. He said, if there is a God in heaven, this is the last day. This is over. And so that was Tuesday night. Thursday morning, um, Jim is shaving his face in the bathroom, and his wife bursts through the door, and she says, she is downstairs. He's like, what? He's like, Chrissy is downstairs, and she needs to see you right now. And so he wipes off all the shaving cream from his face, and he runs downstairs, and he walks in there, and he sees his daughter on her knees on the floor. Eyes are bloodshot red, and she is covered in tears. And she said, and he kind of whispered her name, he's like, Chrissy? And, and she goes, Daddy, who was praying for me? And he was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, Daddy, who was, who was praying for me? Last Tuesday, who was praying for me on last Tuesday? And he's so, like, in disbelief and shock, he did, like, he can't even muster up any words. And she's, here, I'm just going to read you what she said. She goes, in the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading towards this abyss. There was no bottom to it, and it scared me to death. I was so frightened, I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther, and he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? When we pray, when we cry out to God, who are, what other people has the power and the privilege to change the mind of the one who controls all things. We have to take advantage of it if we're to fulfill our mission as the church. We have to take advantage of it if we're going to fully live in the kingdom and bring other people into the kingdom. Our prayers do so much that they can even change the mind of God. And it just makes me, I know that there are, 
Like Terry said, we have people who have lost their jobs. We have people who are sick. I know that we have people who have wayward children. I know that we have people who just need the Lord for something. Or you know somebody who needs the Lord for something. Can we take all of it? Can we take all of the needs and spread them out before the Lord and say, God, we need you. God, change the way that this is going. I would like to take just a couple of minutes. Um, I think it would be foolish to have a sermon like this and then not pray. <laughs> uh, I've asked Terry just to cue up a song for us. Um, I'm just going to play, play a short song, but if you feel the call and you see the urge and you see the need, that there's something you need to bring before the Lord to change, um, I, there's not going to be anybody up here, but just going to say that the altar is open and you come into your business with the Lord, just like Hezekiah, laying it out before him uh, if you need it.